Ready. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. All of the information I have is from public sources. Hello, class. How's everybody tonight? You should be listening to this on or near St. Patrick's Day. So, bon octe, ma fala podrig git. I hope I said that right. Obviously, that's happy St. Patrick's Day in Gaelic. We have a request today from Chelsea. So, thank you, Chelsea. This case, I've actually, well, I heard of it, that's all. But I wasn't real familiar with it. And, wow. This is a, I think the word is doozy. And here is a very big trigger warning for this case. There's a whole bunch of violence, torture, and abuse of just about every type you can think of in this because we're going to talk about a cult. And you know how some of those cults are, especially this one. Just to give you an idea, this dude, his name was Rock Terrio. He was considered one of Canada's three worst criminals, with the other two being Paul Bernardo and Robert Picton. So, if that tells you anything, if you'd like to leave class because of the uh, subject matter, here's a hall pass. Just kidding. Just go ahead and turn me off, and I'll see you next time. Okay. So, a little bit of a background on uh, the geography. This case takes place in Canada, specifically the provinces of Quebec, and later on, we're moving to Ontario. And this guy, Rocterio, was born in the town of Saguenay, Quebec, on May 16th of 1947. His family was actually directly descended from the original European settlers who came to this area in the 1640s. His dad's name was Hyacinth. Yeah, a dude named Hyacinth. And he was a house painter. His mother's name was Pirouette. She was a stay-at-home mom. They were devout Catholics, so they wanted a lot of kids, which they did have. Rock was the second of eight. However, one of his siblings died as an infant, so they had seven, which is still a lot of kids. When he was six during the 1950s, the family moved to the town of Thetford Mines, which was founded around rich asbestos deposits. And I saw, I was like, hmm, asbestos? Because, you know, that's like poison. So I was like, maybe he breathed too much of this or something. They were considered like backwoods, or in the United States, we would call them hillbillies or yokels. They went to a four-room schoolhouse. None of the kids went to high school. And Rock dropped out in seventh grade. We don't know if he had just got tired of going to school, or if there wasn't any further than seventh grade to go to. Depending on who you ask, his childhood was anything from normal and healthy to violent and abusive. He would later claim that his dad was a violent alcoholic who beat all of the kids and kicked Rock out when he was 14. There was a neighbor who years later was interviewed and said he remembered the mother always hollering at the kids 
so loud that you could hear her from like, I can't remember the length of measurement he used, but really far away. And this neighbor remembered that the family, instead of family games, like I play as a kid, like um, Monopoly, chess, whatever, they had this game called Bone. And the dad and the sons sat around the kitchen table wearing steel-toed boots and took turns kicking each other in the shins. Um, okay. As a kid, Rock read a lot. He was very intelligent, and it kind of went to his head. He thought that he was smarter than everybody else. He learned English, which was rare in that area of Quebec. Most of the people in that area spoke only French. Supposedly, as a teenager, he was popular, had a lot of friends, liked to hang out with his friends and drink alcohol, and for some reason that I just cannot figure out, he was like a ladies man. He was intelligent, charming, because he was a cult leader, so he's got to be charming. Self-proclaimed, well-endowed, I think we know what that means. And everything I read talked about him being good-looking. And have you seen pictures of this dude? Okay, I, like I said, I don't understand that, but I guess to each his own, right? Now, this is going to be important, and if I had a blackboard, I would write this down. His dad was very distrustful of the government and didn't trust banks. I guess he thought they would, like, steal his money. So he was one of those people who would have, like, all these, well, in Canada, I guess they were, all those, you know how they have that pretty different colored bills? I guess his mattress was full of pretty different colored bills. He was, like, one of those types. Rock's dad, Hyacinth, joined a group called the White Berets, who were also known as the Pilgrims of St. Michael, and they were described as a militant Roman Catholic conservative group who promoted a better world, especially through economics, which I can't really understand, but I guess that doesn't really matter. They had meetings and they would travel around, I guess, preaching or pontificating, whichever word you want to use. And this is kind of um, ironic, as we'll see. Rock resented his dad because he would make him go around door to door handing out brochures and whatnot for this group. And since this group was very conservative, they were kind of afraid of liberal trends. And this would have been like the 60s, so I'm supposing liberal trends would be like those crazy kids with their rock music and their, I don't know, drive-ins and whatever they did back then. No, I was not here yet. Now, rock was what you would call kind of like me, and this is one of the very few, besides liking to read, only ways in which I'm like him. He was kind of a nature person. He liked to go out in the woods where there was plenty of where they lived and just kind of commune with nature. And he liked to carve and build stuff out of wood. He was also prone to exaggeration and or outright just lying, just ridiculous stories. One of which is that he played with bears in the woods. Yeah, played is in like rolled around and frolicked with bears. That'd be cute if it happened, but I just don't see that happening. He also said 
that on these hikes, God would talk to him. And you can probably see where this is going. On November 11th of 1967, he got married. He was 20 years old and he married Francine. They moved to the big city of Montreal. He worked as a chimney cleaner and inspected furnaces and made his wife dress conservatively. They had two kids, Rock Sylvan, was born in 1969, and Francois was born in 1970. It was probably around this time that he became obsessed with sex, just really oversexed. And he asked his in-laws if he could use their land to start a nudist colony. And not surprisingly, they said no or no. And I told you he made stuff out of wood. He would go around selling his wood carvings. And they must have been decent enough that people actually bought them. But he would go around selling these things and use these trips as an excuse to whore around, as we say here. And this is when he met a woman named Giselle, who was going to become very important in the story. So remember that name. Somewhere around this time, he joined the Aramis Club, which is like a French version of the Shriners, again, like a another religious organization. And this is very important, so pay attention or write this down. In the fall of 1970, he got sick. He had bad abdominal pain, and he found out that he had a duodenal ulcer. If you don't know, the duodenum is the, like the lower part of the stomach. So he had part of his stomach surgically removed. And like a good hypochondriac, like nowadays, we would come home from the doctor and Google everything we can about ulcers and symptoms and buy books and whatnot. But this is way before the com computers and Google. So he had to settle for books about medicine and surgery. So he was obsessed with reading these books. And he started to eat healthy, which is always a good idea, but especially if you have a stomach disorder. But he was still in a lot of pain. So he had another operation in which even more of his stomach was removed. And he was still having stomach problems. And he was found to have something called dumping syndrome. And in case you're wondering what that is, it's when the stomach empties its contents too fast into the intestines and it causes nausea and stomach cramps. It's caused by gastric surgery. As a result, he was in a lot of pain, which caused him, like unfortunately many people do, to turn to painkillers and unfortunately also alcohol. We, we all know, or we should know, that those don't mix. So this combination of pain, painkillers, and alcohol made him angry, foul-tempered, and self-centered. He got a sense of entitlement. He thought that he deserved things because he was in pain. And I can kind of relate to that a little bit. If I'm having a bad pain day, I'm feeling crappy, and I'm on Amazon, I might think, oh, you know, my life sucks, I hurt. I think I'm going to treat myself to that fill-in-the-blank. So I can see that a little bit. But from what I understand, he took this to extremes. He became convinced that he was dying and that his insides were made of plastic. I don't know if this kind of sounds like a delusion, but I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just taking a guess. 
So he quit his job and, to support himself, made furniture for a living. Apparently, this wasn't very lucrative because he went bankrupt and lost his house to the bank. Notice I emphasize the word bank because he came from a family who distrusted banks. So here, I think his father's teachings are reinforced that banks are no good and they're just out to steal from you. And he really took this to heart, as we're going to see. So his wife, Francine, was like, fuck this, and took the kids and left, which, of course, you can't blame her. And I told you that he had met Giselle and had been screwing around with her. So he immediately moved in with Giselle. And soon he joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I have to tell you exactly what this is, just a little bit, so that you can understand. The Seventh-day Adventists are a Protestant denomination, and they were founded in the United States in 1863. They're distinguished by having their Sabbath or day of rest on Saturday, and their emphasis on the second coming of Jesus, which they call the Advent, hence the term Seventh-day Adventist. They're into vegetarianism, kosher food, healthy lifestyle, which, of course, there's nothing wrong with. It sounds like a good idea. And at first, Brock was happy with his new church, and they were happy with him. He was one of their most active members. He would give his own seminars on how to quit smoking and drinking, which is course is kind of ironic. And this is a quote directly from him. I organized detox sessions in several cities across Quebec in four different counties. A five-day program based on healthy eating, psychological, and group therapy achieved excellent results, end quote. While all that may sound good, the church was a little bit concerned because I mentioned he was charismatic, especially with the ladies or mademoiselles, and people started coming to the church not to see the, uh, I don't know, pastor, priest, whatever, but to listen to rock. He gave sermons that were charismatic and intelligent. He was one of the church's best recruiters. He believed he was God's messenger, because remember I told you when he went in the woods, God would talk to him directly, and he thought that God had directly chosen him to spread his message and prepare people for the second coming. He said that he had personally met God, and, you know, God was like his uh, bosom buddy, told him stuff, and the church wasn't real fond of this, and this is another direct quote from Rock. People coming to live and work with me led to some serious organizational problems. They had all left jobs to devote their time to their new work. Since my course had no set fee, it was impossible for me to pay my helpers. This is what prompted us to create a commune, end quote. He claimed that the Seventh-day Adventists took issue with him because he didn't accept donations for the church. So there was a rift that grew between him and the church. And eventually, if you didn't see this coming, him and his followers were expelled. But the church's story, and I kind of tend to side with them on this one, they said no, what it was was he stole money from them and was always drunk. So him and his followers continued to travel, offering this detox program and ministering to people. And the exact date of the cult's formation would be sometime in 1977. 
He moved into the woods in St. Marie, which is about 65 kilometers or 40 miles south of Quebec. The original followers he had were Solange, Chantel, Francine, not the one he was married to, another one, Nicole, Maurice, Jose, Jacques, Claude, and Jacques Jaguer and his wife Maurice and their six-month-old daughter. Notice I said original members because like any good cult, of course they're going to gain followers and unfortunately impregnate each other and produce children. When they got to this new spot, they opened a healthy living clinic, which sold organic foods and holistic literature, which is a good idea. Then Rock came up with the idea that they should all wear uniforms as a sign of togetherness. They wore tunics. The girls wore green. The men wore beige. And Rock himself chose dark brown, like a giant turd, or maird, as the French say. And as we'll see, it's a perfect color for his personality. They actually made money from this store, and they also produced baked goods, which must have been really good, because as we'll see later on, they pretty much subsisted on just the sale of these baked goods. I'm curious to know exactly what they were. Then they started getting followers that just, I guess, maybe came to the store to shop and were attracted by the lifestyle, which on the outside and at this point when the cult was new, it's still pretty benign. There's nothing crazy or abusive going on yet. And some of these followers were Leo Fauché, who sold all of his worldly possessions to fund the clinic and move in with his wife and child, and the aforementioned Jacques and Maurice Jaguer and Maurice and Jose Pelletier. All of the women, except for Maurice, competed with each other for his attention, and you know that's because he's just such a hot, smoking piece of man there. And Giselle felt threatened by all these women throwing themselves at her husband or her boyfriend and afraid she might lose him, proposed to him, which he accepted. So on January 8th of 1978, they were married at an Adventist church in Montreal. Eventually, the outside world took notice of them because they weren't paying bills like utility bills. Even a cult has bills to pay. So they would send the police there, and unfortunately, they couldn't really do anything. Around this time, around spring of 1978, there was a 38-year-old woman named Geraldine Auclair, whose husband had become friends with Rock somehow. And poor Geraldine had leukemia you know, like blood cancer. So her husband, quote unquote, admitted her to the um, cult's healthy living clinic. And I don't know if they had beds there and the people in the cult tended to them, but Rock went to see her in the hospital and he actually got in a yelling match with her doctor, like physician over 
her treatment, specifically her drugs. Here's this dude with a seventh grade education, and the only medical knowledge he has is from books, arguing with an actual physician over the treatment of somebody with cancer. So this poor woman's husband was dumb enough to take her out of the hospital and put her into this quote-unquote clinic. And her dad wasn't allowed to visit her there. The treatment for cancer in Rock's clinic was grape juice and organic foods. Needless to say, this did not cure her cancer and she died there. He told his followers that he went in and kissed her before she died, but he kissed her and she awakened from death. You know, like, um, what is that? Sleeping Beauty? But in the end, he said, quote, you know, when God wants people, he takes them. It was Geraldine's time, end quote. By the way, public service announcement. When somebody dies, don't say to their loved ones, oh, God wanted them. That's rude. I think if my mother or somebody died and somebody said, well, God wanted them, I would probably choke them. But anyway, so then a 19-year-old MS patient named Gabrielle. Gabrielle is a common name in the story. I know it's, it's hard to keep them all straight. But her parents, who knew Rock from one of his anti-smoking workshops, put her in the clinic hoping he could help her with MS. And usually MS is not life-threatening. In any way, it can't be cured. But unfortunately for her, she decided to hang around and join the commune. And he had this thing that he would do. He would marry people, like perform marriage ceremonies because he thought he was, I don't know, you know how close he is with God. They're like BFFs. So maybe he just thought he was authorized. And he would just randomly pick, okay, you and you, you know, I'm going to marry. And he married Claude and Solange and Jacques and Nicole. And in the meantime, poor Giselle, his real wife, was pregnant. And I don't think pregnant women are always that happy. She was feeling kind of unattractive and, you know, like he didn't pay enough attention to her. So she gave him an ultimatum. She said, either break up this commune or I'm going to move back to my family home. So how he answered the ultimatum was he punched her in the mouth and locked her in a room for two days. Now, another event, world event, that happened in 1978 was the Jonestown Massacre. You know, the mass suicide by another crazy cult leader named Jim Jones. So this was kind of on everybody's mind, especially the police. And like I mentioned before, they were keeping their eyes on this commune. So Rock said that we're going to have to move like somewhere further into the wilderness away from society where we can be closer to God and, you know, more pure. And the funniest part of this story is later on he made a quote, and I don't know who this quote was to, whether it was a psychologist who interviewed him or what, but he said he just wanted to go off into the wilderness alone. And all these people just picked up and followed him. And don't you hate when you just want to go off by yourself and you have all these people up your ass? Nathan does that to me. I hate that. So they pack up their cars and vehicles and, and whatnot, and they form like a caravan. They spend a month wandering around in the Gaspé Peninsula, which is kind of near Maine in the United States. And finally, in July, they settled outside of the village of St. 
jug, and Rock found an isolated hill. He named it Eternal Mountain, and he said, okay, this is where we're going to set up camp. And there was a time limit they had to hurry because according to Rock, the world was going to end. And he had the exact date, February 17th of 1979. Apparently, God had told him this during one of their many chats. The world was going to end in a storm of boulder-sized hell with earthquakes and lightning. And they would survive only if they made a righteous life under him as their leader. So they set up a bunch of tents and then they started work on a cabin. And they worked at least 17 hours a day. They cleared land and occasionally went into town for tools. During all this work, what was Rock doing, you may wonder? Well, what he was doing was sitting on his ass watching everybody work because he has pain. Remember the stomach pain. And he compared them to a bunch of ants working on an anthill, hence the name the Anthill Kids. And this is when he started to get mean. He rationed the food, and the people were so tired and hungry from working all day that they became easily compliant and open to suggestion, which he did a lot of, in the form of preaching. He told them everybody else was evil and a bad influence, especially their families. So they were cut off from their families. And I think that's like step number one in the cult leader's manual is cut off the members from their families. It's also one of the first steps of domestic abuse. He would use Bible quote. Remember, he was an avid reader, and one of his favorite reading materials was the Bible, along with medical and surgical textbooks. Which, come to think of it, I wonder where he got medical and surgical books from. I don't know, but anyway... You know how people use the Bible, they find quotes, and they use them to their own advantage because there's, what, like a million pages in it, and there's so many different quotes, and you can shape them to mean whatever you want. Well, he was really good at this. Years later, during an interview, Claude said, quote, We never ate breakfast. Terrio would have the women bring us a small lunch portion, but barely enough to keep us going. We were always hungry, always hoping we'd get our fair share at supper time, and we knew if we disobeyed his orders, we'd be punished by receiving smaller portions, end quote. Around this time, there were two escapees. There was Yolande, who was actually from France. She returned to France, said that her passport had expired, and that guy named Leo left with his family, and Rock let him, but he said that God thought that he was evil because, you know, he's like BFFs with God, and I guess God told him this. So in September of 1978, their cabin was done. It was really big, but it was only one room, and they didn't really have rooms. They made partitions with sheets, with curtains to like partition off into sections. At first, life didn't seem to be that bad. Rock would organize skits, plays, and they would all sing. And there's a lot of parallels here with Charles Manson. Only I think Manson treated his people better besides sending them out to kill people, that is. But they would all sing together. And to commemorate starting a new life, he gave everybody new names, new biblical names. I don't know if you're familiar with 
the Manson family, but he did the same. Rock himself was Moses because he thought of himself as a leader or a prophet. And in French, that will be Moise. He was also called Pappy and Giselle was called Mammy. Giselle's other name was Esther, which means star. Solange was Rachel, which means lamb. Gabrielle was Thertza or Tertza, which means charmer. Poor Francine got the name Hogla. That's an actual name. I looked that up. And why somebody would call their kid Hogla is beyond me, but that supposedly means partridge. Nicole was given the name Deborah, which meant queen bee, which I think is cool. Chantel was called Ruth, which means companion. Jose was called Noah, which means comfort. There were two Maurices. Maurice Lambert was Sarah, which is princess. And Maurice Grenier was Rebecca, which means ensnarer. Maurice's husband, Jacques Chaguerre, was named Nathan, which means what God gives. That's my baby's name. Claude was called Boaz, the one with strength. Another, There was another Gabrielle, and she was called Machia, which means beauty. And the other Jacques, Jacques Fesset, was named Joshua, of whom God is salvation. So all those names were supposed to mean something. I just took Nathan outside. It's really warm out. Most of the snow's melted. And while we're on the topic of Nathan, I wanted to tell you about BarkBox. BarkBox is, of course, a monthly subscription service for dogs that comes with cute, fun toys and treats. And Nathan loves his. He gets so excited when I bring it in from outside. And he dances around and jumps around and barks. And it's so cute to see him playing with all the toys. And if you go to my show notes and click the BarkBox link and subscribe to BarkBox from there, you get a whole free month of BarkBox for you and your dog or dogs. And if you do, what would be really cool is if you took pictures of your dogs with their toys and emailed them to me and I'll put them on my Instagram. Wouldn't that be fun? So when we left off, it was about October of 1978, a few months before the world was set to end, and Giselle told her husband Rock that she thought the unmarried women of the commune were lonely. So what he did was, remember he's into the Bible and using stories from it for his own um, uses. Apparently, there's somebody in the Bible named King David who had a harem or, you know, a bunch of wives. He thought this sounded like a really cool idea. So what he did is he declared everybody's marriages void and married all of the females to himself, including Gabrielle, the girl with MS. Now, she was an invalid, and I think she was in a wheelchair, so he didn't pressure her for sex, fortunately for her, but he did from all his other quote-unquote wives. And this is starting to sound like a soap opera, but Giselle found out that he had had sex with Nicole. This was before he went and married everybody to himself. So Nicole told Giselle, and Giselle, of course, got really upset and cried and everything. So she ran out of the cabin. I think she was going to run away. And Rock chased her and, like, yanked her down to the ground and started choking her. And while he's doing this, he's yelling at her. 
like she said it was like maniacal like his eyes were you know people get crazy and their eyes look like they're you know like a lunatic or something he goes quote my name is moses and i am your master you will obey me if you don't do what i tell you the lord will crush your skull end quote so that kind of scared her and she decided to stay where she was at least for the time being every night this is another thing that manson did they would have a gathering, probably around a fire. I picture a campfire here, but I don't know. And Rock would preach or encourage them to share secrets and childhood memories, kind of like group therapy. Only, you know, nothing that this dude did was healthy or good. He always had to make everything a weapon. So he admits them that their parents were agents of Satan and that, of course, helped with the whole um, don't speak to your family thing. And Gabrielle later said, quote, we really believed he was a representative of God, end quote, which is really, really frightening. So Jonestown occurred in 1978, you know, the mass suicide. And I told you earlier that the police kind of had their eye on him. They didn't trust him. They thought he was up to no good, which of course he wasn't. And they wanted to break up the commune, but they didn't really have a cause at this point. So they took Rock into custody and gave him a psychological evaluation with which he cooperated. He said the group was a democracy and lived in peace, um, conveniently failing to mention the uh, rationing of food, abuse, and the harem. The psychologist thought he was a delusional wacko, but had no proof that he was actually dangerous. So they unfortunately had no choice but to release him. At this time, he started to get off his healthy diet. Remember, he was all into the Seventh-day Adventist, eat vegetables and don't drink alcohol, blah, blah, blah. Well, he was eating meat again and junk food, and eventually he started out, you know how recovering alcoholics, please don't take offense if you are one, but you know, it's like, oh, you know, I'll have a little sip of this here, a little sip of that here. And pretty soon he was like raging drunk like every day. One of his sources of food was quite disturbing. He would prostitute his wives to the local grocers. In other words, um, you know, you can screw one of my wives for a dozen eggs and a gallon of milk. When he was drunk, the sermons would turn into more of a, a torture session. He would keep everybody up late with these long, drunken, rambling sermons. And if somebody dared to fall asleep, they would get bopped on the head with a four-inch thick club. And when pregnant Maurice ate two more pancakes than she was permitted, remember, pregnant, like eating for two, he punched her and broke two of her ribs. And another favorite punishment, if somebody, I guess, committed some transgression, was to make them stand naked in the snow. And remember, this is Canada. I mean, that's bad enough anyway, but especially in Canada. So early 1979, just before the end of the world is scheduled to happen, Maurice Grenier discussed the possibility of leaving. And I don't even know why she would discuss it in front of him, to be honest. But Rock told her husband, Jacques, as a punishment to cut off one of her toes with an axe. Well, of course, Jacques hesitated and he started to cry. 
and Rock said to him, quote, What are you, a faggot? Don't you have any balls? If you want to be a man, you have to learn how to teach your woman a lesson, end quote. And then he said, well, you know, if Jacques's not going to do it, then he'll do it himself. So Jacques reasoned, well, if I let Rock do it, he's probably going to cut off more than one toe, so I'll do it. And he reluctantly cut off his wife's little toe, and after that, earned the title of main enforcer. Can you imagine cutting off your spouse's toe? under duress. See, this is why Rock was so horrible, is he knew that making somebody cut off a loved one's appendage was worse than just doing it himself, because you have the added element of psychological torture, as, you know, sadism. So, to nobody's surprise, well, maybe to theirs, but the rest of the world, no. February 17th came and went, and people asked him, um, you know, wasn't the world supposed to end today? What happened with that? And Rock said, well, see, I'm sorry about that. I made a miscalculation. That, it turns out, that's God's time, and he's, like, in a different time zone than us. So, you know, I, I erred on the exact date, but don't worry, it's still gonna come soon. So I'm still right about that part. A few of the people were skeptical, like, uh, okay, whatever you say, dude. But surprisingly, most of them, and remember, he has most of them totally brainwashed already. Most of them are still there. Chantel's parents got a court order for her to get psychiatric tests because they were worried about her being there, obviously. So two police officers came to get Chantel, and I don't know what Rock did or said, but he chased them away. And I don't know what kind of police they had there, but I'd like to think if I was in trouble that the police that came to rescue me wouldn't be able to be chased away. Apparently, Rock would be violent and horrible one night and then the next day, he would cry and beg for forgiveness and supposedly beg God to stop using him as a vehicle. Vehicle for what? I'm not sure, but I don't know if this was genuine. Like, he genuinely felt remorse for treating people like shit and abusing them or if it was all part of this act. So in March of 1979, Quebec City's Le Soleil newspaper published a story called They Are Happy and Free to Leave If They Wish. That was the name of the story. And it had quotes in it from Jacques Fesset. Remember that was the the one guy who'd left the cult. So 10 cops come by helicopter and land on the compound, and they arrest Rock for obstruction of justice. This was based on what was published in the newspaper, what Jacques had said. They ordered him to have another psych evaluation, and this one was in Quebec City at a hospital there. So he supposedly turned on the charm for the psychologist and said that he saved his followers from drugs and put them on the right track. And I know of no evidence or mention that any of these people were involved with drugs or any other such thing before they met him. He was released from the hospital and deemed fit to stand trial for obstruction of justice. And he was found guilty of this and given a one-year suspended sentence. In other words, a slap on the wrist. All this did was 
proved to his followers that he was godly because he got a quote-unquote clean bill of health from the psychologists and psychiatrists. While he was gone, Giselle held down the proverbial fort, and if people's family members came and tried to visit, they were treated um, pretty much like shit and discouraged from returning. Gabrielle Nadeau, the girl with MS. I don't know what happened to her, but she fell into a coma and died, naturally. Rock wanted to bury her at the foot of the mountain, but the authorities came and took her for an autopsy, and her death was found to be of natural causes, no foul play. But Rock said, okay, if anybody else dies, their, their body is staying here. And unfortunately, there would be other deaths there that weren't due to natural causes. And with that, that's called foreshadowing. We're going to break here. And when we come back next week, we're going to hear of horrific abuse. So it's going to get a lot worse. We've only touched the tip of the iceberg here. The things this asshole did to these people is absolutely unimaginable. It's horrific. And some of them are little kids. So trigger warning in advance. This one's going to be a lot more disturbing. And we'll finish it up with psychology and what happens to everybody. So, two-parter. I will see you next week. Class dismissed.